0: Going, we're going to commence in prayer and we'll seek the Lord. eternal God and Father in heaven, we thank thee this morning for all of thy goodness and grace and mercy toward us. We thank thee we can look unto thee and we pray that as we continue studying the history of thy church, that thou would bless it to us and that we would learn uh, much from thee. May our hearts be encouraged to continue standing for thee. And as we consider today some of those errors that crept into the early church, we pray, O God, that thou would be pleased to keep us pure, to keep us from false doctrine, to keep us from those errors and heresies that can take our love for thee and, Father, can seriously hinder our testimony and our service for the Master. We do remember the Sunday School. We thank Thee for them. We thank Thee for the children uh, who will be taking part this afternoon. Bless them. And we pray uh, that even their witness and their song about the incarnation of the Saviour uh, would uh, be a blessing as we go uh, to the care home later Father bless us, do us good, and may we rejoice that we have the truth, and may we buy it and sell it not. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. I'm going to turn in the Word of God this morning to the Epistle of Jude. Uh, the Epistle of Jude. Epistle of Jude, or to keep it in line with uh, the other books in the Word of God, Jude uh, chapter 1, but there is only uh, one chapter in the book of Jude. Jude 1, Jude, and reading from the first verse, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to them that are sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, and called. Mercy unto you, and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in on a word who were before of old ordained to this condemnation ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen, and may the Lord bless the reading of his precious word this, this morning. The last uh, number of weeks we have considered... The various persecutions that came upon the Church of Christ. Uh, persecutions, 10 specific periods uh, when the emperors of the Roman Empire persecuted the believers found within the Church in various places. There were also outbreaks of local persecution in cities and towns throughout the Empire, and many Christians were persecuted, tortured, put to death by beheading, set on fire fed to wild beasts in the arenas for the entertainment of the multitudes. And we see in Scripture that persecution is something that the believer will face in their life for the Savior. That persecution can take many forms. It may not always be persecution unto death, but persecution is something the church has constantly endured throughout the ages. And so when we look at the early church, we see that the scriptural account and the account of history indicates persecution. But the scriptural account and the account of history also shows us that the church had to contend with something else. And we see this here in Jude, for example, implied uh, that we are to earnestly contend for the faith. And why is that? Why are we to contend for this faith? Because there are those who have crept in, uh, men who seek to deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. There is false doctrine. There are many other verses concerning false doctrine in the scriptures that we could turn to, uh, but it is that common consensus, I'm sure, amongst us that the Word of God teaches us about false doctrine that can enter into the church of Christ, not merely error. There can be errors that creep in, but Error on a greater scale is heresy and heresies can come into the church, heresies that attack the person of Christ, that attack the nature of God, that attack his divine power and his divine attributes and those heresies change the face of the church and they change our worship and they change our relationship with God and they change the assurance of salvation that we can have because these truths and the authority of Scripture is set aside. And when the authority of Scripture, the belief in what God has given us in his word, is questioned or set aside, it opens the door. It opens the door. And we could imagine the doorway of this church being blocked by furniture. We could put a big sign on that furniture and say eh, on that sign, the authority of Scripture. And there could be those outside who are looking in who hold all manner of false doctrine. So if we remove that blockage, then they can come into the building. And that is what happens within the church. When we set aside the authority of the Word of God, when we set aside not only believing it, And practicing it, sometimes we can still believe it. Sometimes we can still believe in the great doctrines of the truth. Or say we believe them. But there can be a lack of practice. And when there is a lack of practice, what happens? The enemy comes in. The false doctrine comes in. We could imagine this congregation. And we could think about the doctrines that deny the divinity of Christ. And we could have people come into our midst and Uh, they could be asked to preach in our pulpit and they deny that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the leaders, the elders of this congregation don't want to pick a fight, don't want to stand for that truth. They set it aside. They're not going to deal with the issue and then those that deny the divinity of Christ, what do they do? They have free reign. They can talk amongst themselves and amongst the congregation they can occupy the pulpit and preach this truth and influence others that we as the church have made a mistake. Christ is not God. Christ is not the Savior. And what happens? Well, our views begin to change and that heresy affects how we preach and how we teach and how we present the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are to guard We are to be watchful and church history teaches us to do exactly that. The Word of God teaches us that but so does the history of the church and that is why church history is important. And so coming today we are going to consider two early errors that are found within the early church. The first one is uh, montanism. It has nothing to do with the the US state of Montana. Nothing to do with that whatsoever. But it was founded by a man called Montanus. He was from Phrygia in what is now known as modern day Turkey. And the origin of these teachings can be dated from around 135 to 177 AD. He, alongside two women, Prisca and Maximilla, declared themselves to be prophets. Notice how that is freeze? they declared themselves and that again is another problem we see in the church men declare themselves to be prophets men declare themselves to be preachers and teachers in presbyterian church government and eh, we find that the church the presbytery declare men to be preachers and eh, when i came here in june I came here because not only had the congregation called me, but the Presbytery had said, we agree and we support your decision and we have no problem with this man being a pastor of one of our churches and therefore we're going to come and we're going to show to the congregation uh, that uh, there is authority here and oversight of the Presbytery. There's a curve for the congregation and there's a curve for the new man who's being ordained. And he is not standing up and saying himself, I'm the preacher, I'm the pastor, but that authority upon him comes from us, ultimately from God, but by the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. But yet we find throughout church history, and especially those who cause problems, and those who are false prophets and false teachers, they declare themselves. Because the church will not declare them because of what they believe and what they teach. And so he declared himself to be a prophet. In many ways, these individuals were orthodox. They kept true to the faith, but they believed that they had directly received divine revelation. When we think of the apostles, when we think of the apostle Paul, he received divine revelation. He was inspired by God as well to write the scriptures. But yet he was claiming, Montanus was claiming, that he had received revelation from God to him. And that sounds familiar because there are many today that have that opinion. They believed that the age of the paraclete, that's their term for the Holy Spirit based on the Greek. And the Greek word translated, the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit, John 14, John 16 is the Greek word that uh, we, we use to get the English word paraclete. They believed that he had come, that the end of the world was at hand, and uh, they did not want to separate from the wider church. Uh, But Tertullian recorded that a bishop almost declared Montanism as orthodox Christianity. There was such a spread of it, uh, but yet the church, uh, by and large, was against the teachings of Montanus. Philip Schaff, the church historian, said that Montanism was not originally a departure from the faith but a morbid overstraining of the practical morality and discipline of the early church. It was an excessive supernaturalism and puritanism against Gnostic rationalism and Catholic laxity. It is the first example of an earnest and well-meaning but gloomy and fanatical hyper-Christianity which, like all hyper-spiritualism, is apt to end in the flesh. Some of their chief failures was their dependence upon charismatic gifts. And these were elevated over the scriptures. And of course they made prophecies that were false concerning the end of the world. In many ways their beliefs bear a striking resemblance to the modern charismatic movement. They were really the first Pentecostals and the first Charismatics. Montanism spread throughout Asia Minor. Italy, France, North Africa, of course, early Italy and France, Gaul. Uh, Tertullian of Carthage supported Montanism. Irenaeus, who was not a Montanist, advised the uh, bishop of Rome to take a moderate position on Montanism, but it was still rejected decisively by the church. Pentecostals and Charismatics, as we've said, have their roots in Montanism, Although many essential aspects are rejected, such as celibacy, fasting, and there was a desire for martyrdom as well. Of course, celibacy comes into the early beliefs of the Roman Catholic system also. But Montanism raises questions regarding the use of the spiritual or supernatural gifts by the Church of Christ. And this is a question that causes controversy today. Because theologians still debate the use of tongues and prophecy and of course healing. And we see many abuses of these gifts, particularly in charismatic circles. But the record of history implies to us that the gifts did not did that the gifts uh, did not, that should say that the gifts did not continue within the church after the end of the first century. Uh, I missed out. Uh, that word not. The record of history implies to us that the gifts did not continue within the church, sorry, did continue within the church at the end of the first century. However, there was a much lesser use. So it is it is, it is right. Uh, they did continue, but not to the same scale. That's what we're saying. Not to the same scale. And so there was an easing of their use, a much lesser use. And the rise of Montanism also indicates the use of these gifts was not normal practice for the church. The Montanists had this emphasis upon the gifts, but this was not normal. This was not normal. The use of the gifts had eased within the church of Christ, but they placed this great emphasis upon them compared to the orthodox church itself. Montanism caused much interest then because it seemed to point To a fresh outpouring of the Spirit upon the church. Something that brought excitement. But yet this was not the case. So what did they believe? Well there seems to be a big variety. A lot of variety regarding the beliefs and tenets of Montanism. It was influenced by the Gospel of John and the revelation of John. It focused upon prophecy and Montanus' prophecies concerning the revelation of the Spirit for the current generation. It was called New Prophecy. And Eusebius of Caesarea said that Montanus became beside himself, and being suddenly in a sort of frenzy and ecstasy, he reaved and began to babble and utter strange things, prophesying in a manner contrary to the constant custom of the church handed down by tradition from the beginning. And of course we see something there that is very similar to the modern day charismatic movement and talking in tongues and prophecies. Etc. It was claimed by opponents that the Montanist prophets did not speak as the messengers of God, but they spoke as God. That they were possessed by God and spoke as God. So in other words, this morning I can preach, thus and thus saith the Lord. Why? Because the preacher is a messenger of God. Thus and thus saith the Lord. But the Montanus was saying, I am God and I say... And so through these gifts and through their understanding and belief of prophecy, they believed that they could be possessed and speak as God. They were called false prophets. They believed that their revelations from the Spirit could supersede the authority of Christ, the Apostle Paul, or anyone else. And that is a dangerous thing. We see that today in the modern charismatic movement. God speaks through his prophets, they say. And that revelation then can supersede the word of God and the authority of Scripture. It is extra-biblical revelation. And as a church, a Reformed church, we are very much against that idea of extra-biblical revelation. God has given us his word. It is complete. It is finished. It is sufficient. It is all that we need. We don't need another revelation. And even if there were other revelations, Biblical, extra-biblical revelations coming to us, those revelations would have to sit perfectly within the teaching of Scripture. And that is not always the case. That is not always the case. And so, they set aside the authority of Scripture. We must never do that. That is what the heresy here implies to us. And what we should do is we should stand firm to the word of God. We should believe it. And we should practice it. And we should never turn aside from it. Why? Because when we do so, false doctrine comes in. And the ideas of men. And we leave the door open for men to speak as God. And as the spirit is supposedly given Revelation. And we're saying that these things are on the same level or supersede the word of God. God's word should be enough for us. They also recognized women as pastors and elders within the church. Uh, They were also alleged to have believed in the power of the apostles and prophets to forgive sins. And so there was a great variety of beliefs here that were not founded upon the word of God. Montanists were condemned and excommunicated by the church for their beliefs and practices. Christians were suspicious of the prophecies and visions and tongues. Needham, one church historian, said that to Catholics, referring then to the church in general, the Roman Catholic Church was still to rise, but the Catholic Church, the universal church, it came as a response to these heresies. We'll consider that in a moment. He said the Catholics, Montanus seemed like spiritual drunkards. To Montanus, no doubt, Catholics seemed like spiritual corpses. And we can see that today. We can look at the charismatic or the Pentecostal and they're filled with joy. And uh, they are, we could say, uh, hyper-spiritual. They come across happy and joyful and We look at ourselves and we may not have the same outward expression of joy. We look at the Reformed Church and Reformed worship is, to the world, very dry compared to charismatic worship. We can think of the loudness of the music. We can think of the dancing or the swaying or whatever physical activity goes alongside that. We can think of the... Uh, Toronto Blessing, I remember hearing about this Toronto Blessing in the 90s and uh, how it came into churches, it affected individuals and uh, they, from what I remember, it being described as rolling around the floor like dogs. It really was something that was not even remotely close to biblical Christianity. But yet, it seemed lively. It seemed exciting. And the danger is exactly that. Reformed worship, to some, can see it can be dry. Or it could be dead. And therefore, the Pentecostal charismatic worship, it's more entertaining. It's more like going to a rock concert. It's more like watching something on television. And we see the entertainment today where... We are entertained and we can just turn on the television or turn on the internet and we can be entertained from morning to night, every day, constantly. We no longer have to wait to a certain day and a certain time to watch that show we like. And we could watch that show 24-7 because all we need is a subscription or a DVD or something like that. We can watch it whenever we want, on demand. So much entertainment. And that comes into the church of Christ. We want the church then to be entertaining. We don't want to sit for 40 minutes to listen to a sermon. We don't want to stand straight and sing songs that have boring tunes compared to the tunes we see in this world. And therefore worship has to be entertaining. But it's not. And it should not be. Worship is not for man, it's for God our worship should always be Christ-centered. And this is a problem, especially with the younger generation today. And I say that as someone who was once part of the younger generation. 15, 20 years ago, I was part of the younger generation. And I saw the issues, the modern music, the changes of style. Young people were drawn to that, but yet the church was very different. And they wanted that in church and so they left conservative and reformed denominations like ourselves to go to worship God in these churches. There was no theological depth. There was no teaching. There were all sorts of things going on. But the worship and the praise was entertaining. That's what they wanted. But we should have a balanced view. Worship that is pleasing to God. Worship that is not about entertaining us. Worship is, is about getting taught the Word of God, about placing the Scriptures central. And so we see today many, and especially the younger generation, are running after the Pentecostal and charismatic movements because, well, as Needham said about spiritual corpses, Reformed worship is accused of being like that, but it's not. And if your heart is right with God, such worship is not like that. I was at the Trinitarian Bible Society meeting on Friday evening in Chilliwack. It's in the Reformed congregations of North America, and they have different views and beliefs than we have. But they sang a number of songs from their psalter, and the singing was fantastic. It was good singing. I thought the tunes maybe were a little slow, uh, but uh, it was nice to hear it. It was for the first time I heard that, and uh, everyone was singing. I didn't know the tune at all. I just listened, Uh, but it was nice to hear that singing. Now, we sing psalms and hymns in our worship, uh, but here is worship that, like ourselves, is completely different to charismatic worship. And there were young people there and young families there and the singing was tremendous, was tremendous. I've been in other churches, churches in our denomination, churches in Northern Ireland, where the singing follows that same format and it's thrilling and it's enjoyable and it's a blessing. Why? Because God is being praised. We don't need the praise band, we don't need modern songs, we don't need all the nonsense. is found in the charismatic movement today reformed worship is heartwarming worship it is not dead dry worship and it should never be so it is heartwarming not because it is entertaining but because we are worshiping the christ whom god sent to be our savior and we should remember that it's important to understand that as well but coming back to the montanists montanists many of the prophecies did not come true. They were then uncovered as false prophets. Uh, They refer to other Christians as unspiritual. They call them prophet killers if they did not receive the mountainous prophecies. We see that again in Pentecostal and charismatic circles today. Men are referred to as unspiritual if they do not talk in tongues. There's a pressure and a desire for men to talk in tongues some untenants also fell into the heresy that taught that the Trinity was not three distinct persons but one God acting in a number of different ways and so we see this false doctrine heresy that arose and did affect the church and of course after a while it died out and then it has come back last century etc. in the modern Pentecostal charismatic movement and we see that from time to time Heresies arise and they die out, but the root is still there and appears again in a different form. Then we come to Gnosticism. The term comes from the Greek, which means knowledge. Gnosticism is a second century heresy that appeared in the early church. It is believed it appeared in the early church, uh, though it really took great strides in the second century. They claimed a special or secret knowledge which only a number of people could attain. And those that did were referred to as pneumatic or spiritual people. The word pneuma being uh, the Greek word for spirit. This group of people enjoyed the secret knowledge but there was a second class of individuals including the Old Testament prophets who were called psychic and could not proceed beyond simple faith. The rest of humanity were called heilic and they were destined to be utterly destroyed This basic explanation of some Gnostic terms shows us how far removed it is from Biblical Christianity and this heresy seriously threatened the church during the second century in the lifetime of Justin Martyr. There's been debate as to its origin. Some believe it began during the New Testament period and we see Paul and John condemning what appears to be Gnostic ideas in Colossians 2 and in 1 John but it did not spread widely then to the end of the first century. Needham says the early church fathers all agreed that Simon the Magician was the source of the alternate Gnostic version of Christianity. And so what do they believe? Dr. Alan Kearns in his Dictionary of Theological Terms outlines some things to us. And this is really a summary of what he says. God and creation then. Gnosticism was steeped in heathen philosophies and eastern theosophies. Therefore, it rejected the monotheistic teaching of the Bible, monotheism being one God. They believed that there was a supreme being from whom a series of aeons or emanations proceeded, each one originating the following one. It is said that one of these, remote from the supreme being, created the world, but did so in a bad way. And they were identified as the God of the Old Testament. The Gnostics spoke of him being hostile to the supreme being. And so they set aside. The idea of there being one God, the Old Testament God and the New Testament God being one God, as we believe. And therefore, the Old Testament God was very different, and hostile and bad, but the New Testament God is loving. We see that idea today, as some would say that there was a God in the Old Testament who was hateful and filled with wrath, but the God of the New Testament is loving and filled with love and sent us Christ to die for us and therefore these two gods cannot be the same God they have to be different that is a heresy that is wrong we have good and evil as well they rejected the biblical doctrine of sin the world was created by an inferior God and there were seeds of a higher life or fullness of the supreme being ever struggling to be free and this created the struggle between good and evil in the world In regard to Christ, Gnosticism repudiated the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ. Some taught that his body was a phantom or that he was a mere man upon whom the heavenly Christ came upon his baptism and left at his crucifixion. So he was a man who was possessed by the heavenly Christ at baptism and when the body died, the heavenly Christ then left left this body. Scripture, they had a low view of the Old Testament prophets. They corrupted the New Testament scriptures. As they rejected so many biblical doctrines, they had to reject the great witness of Scripture itself. This is far removed from the biblical and Reformation approach of holding the Word of God as our final authority, an ultimate rule for faith and practice. We have Marcion then, AD 139 was when he came upon the scene thereabouts, uh, he was believed to be one of the most Christian of the Gnostics, but he still held to the inferiority of the Old Testament God. He still rejected that Christ was not the promised Messiah. He rejected many of the New Testament books except Paul and ten of or except Luke and ten of Paul's epistles. And so the heresy of Gnosticism posed a considerable challenge to the church. Alan Kern said that much of the philosophy of today's New Age movement has many features with a decidedly Gnostic flavor. So how did the church respond? Irenaeus was one theologian who defended the truth of the scriptures against the error of the Gnostics. And he gave several arguments against Gnosticism. And we have them there in the notes. He detailed the various doctrines of Gnosticism to show the foolishness of the system of doctrine. In other words, he took what they believed, he wrote it down so you could see it, and the idea was when you read that, you saw how silly these things were. And I hope you had that view when we read through some of those beliefs there, God and creation, good and evil. And you're saying, well, this is, this is silly. This is crazy. This is ridiculous. How can men, men trained in theology, men who've read their Bible, how can they believe these things? How can they actually stand up and teach that the world was created in this way and ignore the word of God? But yet the devil has blinded the eyes of many. The devil seeks to corrupt the church of Christ. And that's a warning to us. How easily we can fall into sin. But how easily we can fall into heresy and error and false doctrine. He argued against this special knowledge because none of the Gnostics agreed with each other on what this secret knowledge actually was. He argued that none of the churches pastored by the apostles had any idea of the secret knowledge. And so there were churches that had experienced the ministry at different times of the apostles, but the apostles never said about the secret knowledge. They never taught their church that secret knowledge. It would be like at the end of 30 years or so. I preach and teach about secret knowledge. And people come to this church and say, well, he hasn't said what his secret knowledge is. Did he tell you? He was here 30, 40 years. Did he tell you about the secret knowledge? You're like, we haven't a clue what he's on about because he never spoke about secret knowledge. And that's what was happening in the church in these days. They went back to the churches that were apostles had pastored and these churches knew nothing at all of this secret knowledge. It didn't exist, it wasn't taught. Thirdly, he carefully showed the union between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God and the truth that they are the same God and how important that is. He defended the goodness of creation against the Gnostic belief of the demiurge, the Old Testament, a God. He affirmed the reality of Christ and his incarnation. And so there was a defense of the faith dealing with the errors. And there's a lesson for the Church of Christ today to deal with error. Not let errors sit. Not let it be absorbed by believers, but to deal with it. To deal with it. If there was an error promoted within this congregation, say Gnosticism was brought in and there were those here who were pushing this idea and teaching this idea and persuading about this idea, there is a duty to stand against it. There is a duty to preach about it. And how would we do that? Well, Irenaeus' response is really a standard response. He dealt with the issues. He sought to persuade men and women that this is not the biblical biblical pattern, biblical truth. So the heresy of Gnosticism, compelled the church to place an emphasis upon apostolic tradition as well. It was dangerous ground because it led then to the Catholic Church and what they believed and the importance of tradition. This, so this played a part in the Roman Catholic Church. The church was led to emphasize the rule of faith, which was a summary of apostolic teaching that led into what we know today as the Apostles' Creed. We'll come to the Apostles' Creed uh, later on. It developed over the years, and the form that we have today I think originates in the fifth century. Also, churches where the apostles ministered were seen as significant churches in the stand against this secret knowledge. And of course, in Western Europe, the only church with an apostolic connection was Rome. Was Rome, and this began the dominant rule of the Bishop of Rome in the affairs of the Church. The Church also moved to recognize a complete canon of New Testament Scripture. What is the Word of God? What books should we accept by the apostles? That is a big subject. And of course, they moved to accept a standard canon. The word canon does not mean something you put someone in or a ball in and shoot it. Uh, but the word canon here, it means a rule or a standard. And they set up this rule or standard, the Word of God. And they completed the canon. The church also became known as the Catholic Church. That term Catholic meaning universal or throughout the world. The sects of Montanism had no unity. There were different views and opinions, for example. But but in referring to itself as Catholic, the church declared a unity in doctrine and practice throughout the world. There's something that we believe. There's something we hold to, the word of God. And of course, if you were to go through the different churches, they held to the same fundamental doctrines. And that should be the case. That's the case within our denomination. You go to a church the other side of this country, it believes the same as we believe. And so these heresies came upon the church. And we have a responsibility, as we see in the book of Jude, to deal with heresy, to earnestly contend for the faith, to earnestly contend for the faith. The truths of the gospel of Christ should matter to us. We should love them, desire them, defend them, not turn a blind eye to that which is wrong. We should love the truth and therefore immersing ourselves in the truth and putting the truth in our lives by the grace of God, living the truth and knowing the truth and reading the truth and being taught the truth is a sure protection against the false doctrines of this day and this age. And so we'll end there, trusting the Lord uh, will bless. There's a lot there regarding other beliefs and heresies. It gives us an idea of some of the other challenges that the church faced in these days. But may God bless us and enable us to stand for Him. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank Thee for Thy word and for Thy truth. We rejoice that it is a blessing to us. We pray that even as we consider the false doctrine that arose in these days, that thou would be pleased to enable us to stand for thee. We see some of these same ideas and doctrines coming into churches today and coming into society today, and we pray that thou would enable us to stand by the word of God, to have it as our rule and our standard of faith and practice, that we would not turn from one side to the other, but stand firm. For thee, our God, Father, teach us thy truth, we pray. Apply it to our lives. Enable us to live out that truth. To the glory of thy name, bless us, do us good. And as we come to worship, may we know thy hand upon us, we ask for Christ's sake. Amen.